From New York, this is Democracy Now! I suddenly felt a burn in my back, and then when I tried to move, I couldn't. What happened? I just remember hearing the sound of an explosion. No one's claimed responsibility for Wednesday's twin blasts in Iran that killed at least 84 people and came after senior Hamas leader and Iran ally Salah al-Aruri was killed in Beirut a day before in a strike Lebanese officials blame on Israel. We'll speak with Iranian historian Arash Azizi. Then, as Ukraine and Russia exchanged nearly 500 prisoners in the largest prisoner swap of the war, Russian President Vladimir Putin is reportedly signaling behind the scenes he's open to a ceasefire. We'll go to Moscow to speak with New School professor Nina Khrushcheva, who says the West must face reality in Ukraine. And we'll be joined by civil rights leader Bishop William Barber. He's calling for more awareness and justice for disabled people after he was kicked out of a Greenville, North Carolina movie theater on Christmas when he went to see the color purple with his 90-year-old mother. But our plans were interrupted when the managers of the AMC theater here in Greenville chose to call the police rather than accommodate my visible disability. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Iran's holding a day of mourning after at least 84 people were killed in a pair of explosions in the city of Kherman on Wednesday. More than 280 people were injured. The blast occurred near the tomb of the Iranian general Qasem Soleimani, where hundreds of Iranians had gathered to mark the fourth anniversary of his assassination by the United States in Iraq. No one has claimed responsibility for the blast. Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, has vowed a harsh response. The bombing in Iran came just a day after a top Hamas official, Salah al-Aruri, was assassinated outside of Beirut, Lebanon, in a suspected Israeli strike. His funeral is being held today in Beirut. On Wednesday, Israel also called nine Hezbollah leaders in strikes, killed nine Hezbollah fighters in strikes on southern Lebanon. Meanwhile, a high-ranking commander from an Iranian-backed militia in Iraq was killed earlier today in an airstrike on a militia base in central Baghdad. It's unclear who carried out the strike. The events are increasing fears that Israel's war on Gaza could grow into a regional conflict. On Wednesday, Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah said the killing of Salah al-Ruri will not go unpunished. We extend our congratulations and condolences to our dear brothers and great leader, Sheikh Saleh, deputy leader of Hamas's political office and his fellow leaders and cadre in the Al-Qasim brigades and Hamas, who were martyred yesterday in a flagrant Israeli aggression in the southern suburb of Deheya in Beirut. In Gaza, Al Jazeera is reporting at least 14 members of a Palestinian family have been killed in an Israeli bombing west of Khan Yunus. Separately, Israel has been accused of bombing an area of the Jabalia refugee camp where residents gathered to collect water. Eyewitnesses said the blast destroyed surrounding buildings and injured several people. It is a catastrophe. It is a massacre. No man can understand what is happening. 
The place was bombed. The place is for water collection. People were getting water. This is why it happened. Any area that supports people, the Israelis target it. All water stations in the Strip were targeted. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces have detained hundreds of Palestinians during a 30-hour military raid on the Nur Shams refugee camp. Meanwhile, the International Court of Justice has announced it'll hold two days of public hearings beginning on January 11th in response to South Africa's case accusing Israel of committing genocide acts in Gaza. A senior official in the U.S. Department of Education has resigned to protest the Biden administration's support for Israel's war on Gaza. Tara Kabash, who's a Palestinian-American Christian, wrote in his resignation letter, quote, I cannot stay silent as this administration turns a blind eye to the atrocities committed against innocent Palestinian lives in what leading human rights experts have called a genocidal campaign by the Israeli government. Tara Kabash appeared on CNN Wednesday night. There are people throughout the government, throughout this administration, who have repeatedly tried to use every avenue available to them to raise concerns because they care about this country, they care about this president, and they care about our democracy. And I think what the president is doing by ignoring the will of the people and by ignoring all of these individuals who have continuously supported um, his agenda, I think it's undermining our democratic ideals and it's undermining America. Tarek Abash was a Biden appointee. In related news, 17 current staffers on Biden's reelection campaign have anonymously signed a letter urging the president to support a Gaza ceasefire. They wrote, quote, complicity in the death of over 20,000 Palestinians, 8,200 of whom are children, simply cannot be justified, unquote. Meanwhile, in California, hundreds of Jewish activists and their allies shut down the California state capitol in Sacramento Wednesday, demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. The United States and 11 other nations issued a joint statement Wednesday threatening to take further military action against Houthi forces from Yemen if they continue to target shipping vessels in the Red Sea. The statement said in part, quote, the Houthis will bear the responsibility of the consequences should they continue to threaten lives, the global economy and free flow of commerce in the region's critical waterways, unquote. The Houthis, who are aligned with Iran, have vowed to keep targeting ships linked to Israel until Israel stops its attacks on Gaza. Ukraine and Russia have exchanged nearly 500 prisoners in the largest prisoner swap since Russia invaded Ukraine nearly two years ago. 230 Ukraine POWs were exchanged for 248 Russians. The United Arab Emirates helped mediate the deal. We'll have more on the war in Ukraine after headlines. The U.S. Justice Department has sued the state of Texas over a new state law that empowers police to arrest anyone they suspect of entering the United States without authorization. The law was signed last month by Texas's Republican Governor Greg Abbott. In related news, Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson traveled to Eagle Pass, Texas, with about 60 Republican Congress members Wednesday. He threatened again to block U.S. funding for the war in Ukraine unless the Biden administration intensifies its crackdown on immigrants and asylum seekers. 
If President Biden wants a supplemental spending bill focused on national security, it better begin by defending America's national security. It begins right here on our southern border. In reproductive rights news, a federal appeals court ruled Texas hospitals and emergency room doctors can legally refuse to perform abortions, even if needed to save the life of the patient. The Fifth Circuit Court eschewed federal guidelines for care, siding instead with the state of Texas and anti-abortion groups, which sued the Biden administration for rules it claimed would, quote, force abortion and override state laws. The Center for Reproductive Rights, which represents providers, said, quote, the state's strategy has been to circumvent the court system and the Constitution itself in order to push abortion out of reach for as many Texans as possible. Unquote. Former Harvard President Claudine Gay, who resigned Tuesday, has revealed she faced death threats and was repeatedly called the N-word in recent weeks as a right-wing effort to oust her intensified over her handling of campus protests and her past academic research. Claudine Gay had become Harvard's first black president just six months ago. She's the daughter of Haitian immigrants. In an op-ed in The New York Times, she wrote, quote, they recycled tired racial stereotypes about black talent and temperament. They pushed a false narrative of indifference and incompetence. She also wrote, quote, this was merely a single skirmish in a broader war to unravel public faith and pillars of American society, unquote. Hundreds of pages of court documents related to the deceased, convicted sex trafficker and financier Jeffrey Epstein have been unsealed. One notable document is a deposition from one of Epstein's survivors who said Prince Andrew had groped her at Epstein's Manhattan apartment. The woman also says Epstein talked about former President Bill Clinton, quote, he said one time, Clinton likes them young, referring to girls, unquote. The deposition also referenced a time when Epstein discussed a possible visit with then-future President Donald Trump in Atlantic City. Other notable names mentioned in the unsealed documents include Michael Jackson, the attorney Alan Dershowitz, and late former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson, and the magician David Copperfield. More documents are expected to be unsealed soon. And in Newark, New Jersey, an imam was shot and killed outside his mosque early Wednesday morning. Hassan Sharif was headed to the Masjid Muhammad Mosque for morning prayers. Authorities are searching for his killer. New Jersey authorities say there's no indication yet that the shooting was motivated by bias or that it was an act of terrorism. The imam had also been attacked outside the mosque in August. The New Jersey chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, CARE, praised Hassan Sharif as being a, quote, beacon of leadership in his community. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York. And I'm Narmeen Sheikh. Welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Iran is observing a national day of mourning as the death toll from twin explosions Wednesdays has, has reached 84, with many others injured. The blasts in south-central Kerman province killed attendees to a memorial for top Revolutionary Guards General Qasem Soleimani, who was assassinated in a U.S. drone strike four years ago in Iraq. This is a survivor who was being treated in a nearby hospital. I suddenly felt a burn in my back, and then when I tried to move, I couldn't. What happened? I just remember hearing the sound of an explosion. No one has claimed responsibility for the attack, but Iran has placed blame on Israel and the U.S.
The White House said the Islamic State could be behind the bloody bombings and rejected claims Israel or the U.S. was involved. The tragedy comes amid mounting fears that Israel's war on Gaza could lead to a wider regional conflict. One day before the blast, a senior Hamas leader and Iran ally, Saleh al-Aruri, was killed in a strike in southern Beirut, which Lebanese officials blamed on Israel. And earlier today, a drone strike killed four members of an Iranian-backed Iraqi militia in Baghdad. Iraqi authorities have blamed the U.S.-led international coalition for the attack. For more, we're joined by Arash Azizi, Iranian historian and writer. His book is titled The Shadow Commander, Soleimani, the U.S. and Iran's Global Ambitions. His recent piece in The Nation is headlined, in The National, is headlined, Who are the likely suspects in the Kherman blast and what does this mean for Iran? His forthcoming book out next is titled What Iranians Want, Women, Life, Freedom. Thanks so much for joining us, uh, Arash Azizi. Can you start off by talking about the significance of these two attacks in Iran? No one has yet claimed responsibility, but what you think this looks like? These are really terrible attacks. If you look at the death toll, although the death toll is actually being readjusted lower now, now it's between 80s and 90s, but it still makes it one of the deadliest, if not the deadliest attack of its kind in, in recent history, perhaps even in sort of modern Iranian history. Uh, so they're, they're truly terrible. And of course, they do come at a time when the region is very tense. There's been a shadow war between Iran and Israel and the United States for many years now, but especially in the last few months. Um, and the anniversary of Soleimani's killing four years ago is already a very tense stay because, um, you know, it, it involves a lot of groups in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Iran, um, and you know, Israel, Syria. A lot of them are linked to Soleimani in, in one way or the other. So it's a very tense time, and the attack comes at, at that time. Now, it is true that we, we don't really know who did the attack yet. No one has really claimed it yet. Um, a lot of ex- experts that I've spoken to and myself looking at uh, the existing evidence um, believe that it's sort of the likely culprit, in my opinion, is to be the Islamic State, particularly its group, uh, its regional group based in Afghanistan, no, known as ISIS Khorasan, uh, Khorasan province. Um, and this is a group that, because of the kind of attacks that it did, kind of a mass civilian killing, because of the, you know, putting the bombs in briefcases and, and you know, some of the more, uh, you know, some of the more specific uh, uh, methods used um, and the targets that they've picked, this makes them to be the most and likely culprit um, that have uh, committed the attacks. So, Arash, can you explain? I mean, you've written this book on, on Qasem Soleimani. The, the significance of this attack taking place uh, on the day, the fourth anniversary of his death, as, as people were gathering uh, in his burial place it, where his uh, uh, body is. Uh, but why would the Islamic State, as you said, Islamic State Khorasan, why would they, what would be the incentive for them to carry out an attack now in the midst, as you say, uh, of the uh, what's going on in Gaza, uh, just the, the attack now in Kerman taking place just a day after Al-Huri was, uh, was assassinated in Beirut. Why Islamic State? Um, you know, it's it's likely that they might have planned this attack long ago. Um, uh, they, it might have also been more recent, but 
um, certainly longer than uh, you know Araruri's assassination. So it might not be directly sort of related to that. Um, so they probably planned it a while ago. Now this group has tried to gain power in in Afghanistan in recent years. They are also an adversary of the Taliban regime there, which they see it as some sort of a in some sort of a tacit alliance with Iran. Although the Taliban regime and the Islamic Republic of Iran have a complicated relationship, but they've sometimes worked together in the last couple of years. Although Iran doesn't even officially recognize it as the, as the government. As the government of Af- Afghanistan, um, but this group has tried to raise its profile. Um, th- that's one thing, um, and also they regard Soleimani as the leader of this Shia force that they they consider as an enemy, um, as sort of a symbol of of Shia Islam and the symbol of the Islamic Republic, and, and also a, a sort of symbol of of Iran in this sense. They regard it as such, so it would make sense for them to attack it. Although I would say the fact that they haven't. Uh, uh, taken responsibility yet does give me a bit of pause because if they did it, you know, why wouldn't they already uh, take responsibility for it? Um, and and there, there's possibility that there might be other groups and smaller groups. But again, if it's them, why haven't they taken responsibility? So that's one question that uh, a lot of us are uh, asking right now. I should also say that the National Security Council of Iran met this morning, uh, Iranian time, and you know, after the meeting, um, they issued a statement uh, in which they're also very clear that they also don't know who committed the attacks yet, and that they put sort of the first priority um, in finding out who did the attacks, um, who are behind it. Um, so the uh, while you know the Iranian officials in broad terms condemn Israel and the U.S. as sort of enemies that are behind uh, troubles against Iran, as, as they always do, they haven't actually the sort of the bodies like the Supreme National Security Council uh, haven't pointed direct fingers as as who would be the perpetrator. Um, and you know they have promised, of course, uh, to act against whoever uh, did the attacks. And Arash, the people who were killed, as we said about eighty-four, you said uh, somewhere uh, between eighty and ninety people. None of those. people people were uh, in any way associated with the government, the Revolutionary Guard? Because as, as you've said also, I mean, when they've been attacks uh, perpetrated by either the U.S., Israel, as you say in your piece, has carried out many operations in Iran, but they tend to be targeted against specific people. I mean, most notably the, the series of assassinations of Iranian nuclear scientists. But in this case, That's who was among the dead? That's right. They usually target either IRGC officials, this militia that really rules things in Iran, or the nuclear scientists. Um, and do they have a specific attacks, uh, they, they specific targets, which in this case, um, there doesn't seem to have been any, even a sort of a mid-ranking IRGC official there. Uh, so that makes it, in my opinion, less likely that, that it was an attack uh, by them, although not impossible, but, but much less likely. Um, so uh, in terms of who was the uh, who were the victims from what we can see so far, you know, ordinary people, ordinary civilians. Um, yes, a lot of them might have been there to uh, mourn Qasem Soleimani in some ways. But I should also say this is this is a big cemetery in the you know in Kerman, where it's my maternal city. You know, I've been to the cemetery many times. There are tons of ordinary people who are buried there. In fact, it was Mother's Day in Iran uh, also around that day. So many people might have been just going to their mother's uh, grave as is customary on on such a day we see a large number of children uh, are among the killed and the injured uh, uh, dozens which really shows uh, the you know the kind of victims that this attack had and also first responders um, who came because this was a double blast so the first responders who came to help uh, with the victims of the first blast unfortunately were killed in the second blast which is another uh, sort of a signature of of ISIS and makes it uh, more likely uh, to be that although as I said we really don't know and it's a bit of a speculation at this point point. and Arash Azizi remind us how uh, Qasem Soleimani died and his significance 
Soleimani was killed in a drone strike on January 3rd, 2020, uh, ordered by President uh, Trump at the time, which was a really shocking action. Uh, to, just to give you an idea, a few years before, uh, during the Bush administration, uh, when uh, the Bush administration was trying to kill a Hezbollah leader, they uh, repeatedly, at, at least once, postponed the attack just to make sure they don't hit Soleimani. And that's why, that's because uh, he was easily one of the most powerful men in the Middle East. He was, you could easily say he was the most powerful uh, military figure in Iran uh, at the time. His official job title, he was the head of the Quds Force or the Jerusalem Force, which is basically the external operations wings of the IRGC. Uh, what he really did was that he controlled a very large multinational army of Afghans, Syrians, Iraqis, Lebanese, all around the region and had really commanded and directed uh, Islamic Republic's interventions in countries uh, of the region. So he was of, he was of, of big significance. And also he was a ranking official of a, of a nation state uh, you know, called the Islamic Republic of Iran. So it's, it was sort of highly unusual to assassinate a, uh, a figure like that. Um, uh, in a strike, some people would say, not since uh, the Second World War, when the United States helped kill a Japanese admiral, uh, had such a figure of, of another country been uh, targeted like that. Of course, the uh, official sort of explanations for it was that there were, you know, there have been tons of attacks by forces directed by Soleimani, this group based in Iraq, on U.S. forces. And this has been going on even in the last few months. We've seen more than 100 attacks by these forces uh, on uh, by these sort of Iraqi forces aligned with Tehran on U.S. forces. So that was, uh, you know, that was one um, official reason. The other being that the IRGC uh, was put on the terror group list by the Trump administration. So they regarded Soleimani as having a double role as and one side being a sort of a uniformed official of Iran, but at the same time they saw it as uh, a leading figure in what they considered a terror organization. So that's why they did the attack. Let yes. me ask you about um, Syed Razi Massavi, um, who right around Christmas, uh, an Israeli airstrike outside the Syrian capital, Damascus, killed a senior advisor of the Iran Revolutionary Guard. Um, the sources told Reuters the advisor um, was responsible for coordinating the military alliance between Syria and Iran. And apparently he was with right, Qasem Soleimani when Soleimani was killed. Now he has been killed. That's right. Sayyid Razi Musavi was perhaps, um, I would say, easily uh, the most important, definitely one of the top three IRGC officials, this sort of Iranian militia officials in Syria. And he'd been in Syria a very long time. Um, you know, he, he people would know him in Damascus. He's played a important role in uh, the Syrian civil war. Effectively, this is when the government of Syria, Bashar Assad, helped kill hundreds of thousands of his own civilians, and Iran and IRGC were, were helping him. So Sayyid Razi had an important role there, but he really, even years before, uh, he, he had effectively been based in Syria since the 1990s. Um, uh, late 1990s, I would say for sure. He would go back and forth, but at some point he was entirely based there. His wife taught at the Iranian school in Damascus, so he was an old-timer. When the Iranian intervention really increased in the aftermath of the Syrian revolution followed by the civil war, that's in 2011 and 12, Sayyid Razi became this old guy who... Um, you know, who uh, could help everybody else there uh, because he'd just been uh, there such a long time. So his assassination, which just happened recently, uh, was very important uh, since it was, you know, it, it signaled, uh, probably, you know, Israel and the U.S. probably uh, uh, sort of targeting a really uh, high-value Iranian target in Damascus and which really escalates things um, 
given the conditions uh, that, that we are in. And also possibly points out to Israel, having something like what it did in the aftermath in the 1970s of, of the Munich attacks, which, uh, you know, in the aftermath of that in the 1970s, Israel started an operation, usually known as Operation Wrath of God, in which it went around and killed a lot of leaders of groups that were in some way or the other linked to the terror Munich attacks. So the killing of Al-Aruri, uh, Said Razi, uh, and others uh, might show that Israel has a similar quest. Arash Azizi, we want to thank you so much for being with us, Iranian historian and writer. His book, The Shadow Commander, Soleimani, the U.S. and Iran's Global Ambitions, will leak to your piece in The National. Who are the likely suspects in the Kherman blast and what does this mean for Iran? Forthcoming book out next month, What Iranians Want, Women, Life, Freedom. Um, he's speaking to us from Charlotte, North Carolina. Next up is Ukraine and Russia have the largest prisoner of war exchange since Russia invaded Ukraine. The Russian president is reportedly signaling behind the scenes he's open to a ceasefire. We'll go to Moscow to speak with Nina Khrushcheva, who says the West must face reality in Ukraine. Stay with us. Everything's Nothing's really true. Live Sometimes I Feel So Lonely by Primal Scream. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermi Sheikh. On Wednesday, Ukraine and Russia exchanged nearly 500 prisoners in the largest prisoner swap since Russia invaded Ukraine nearly two years ago. 230 Ukrainian prisoners were exchanged for 248 Russians. The United Arab Emirates helped mediate the deal. This comes after Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Russia fired 500 missiles and drones against Ukraine in just five days. Zelensky spoke Tuesday night. Since the beginning of today, there have been almost 100 missiles of various types, and the trajectories have been specifically calculated by the enemy to cause as much damage as possible. This is absolutely conscious terror. Meanwhile, Russian President Vladimir Putin vowed to intensify attacks inside Ukraine after a Ukrainian attack on the Russian city of Belgorod killed at least 25 people, including five children, on Saturday. He spoke during a meeting with wounded soldiers at a military hospital in Moscow. We, too, want to end the conflict as quickly as possible, only on our terms. We have no desire to fight indefinitely, but we are not going to give up our positions either. 
Last month, The New York Times reported Putin has been signaling through his intermediaries behind the scenes that he's open to a ceasefire in Ukraine. For more, we're joined in Moscow by Nina Khrushcheva, professor of international affairs at the New School, the great-granddaughter of the former Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev. She's the author of The Lost Khrushchev, Journey into the Gulag of the Russian Mind, and co-author of In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones. Her recent article for Project Syndicate is titled The West Must Face Reality in Ukraine. Professor Khrushcheva, welcome back to Democracy Now! Let's start off with the latest, um, the last week. Uh, Putin's intensifying attacks on Ukraine um, more than he ever has since the beginning of the war. Yet we get behind the scenes, the New York Times is reporting, he's signaling uh, that he's interested in a ceasefire. And then you've got this largest prisoner of war swap since the war began. Put it all together for us. Uh, thank you. Good morning. Um, well, these are not connected incidents, I'd say. Uh, the attacks on Ukraine, the largest since the beginning, also in some ways follow the very large attack or attacks in the last week, uh, last two weeks, I guess, on the Russian territory, because the Ukrainian forces also have been shooting. Um, I think it was one day it was 300 uh, 300 missiles. So it has been going on escalating. And the reason it has been happening is we heard so much about Ukrainian counteroffensive really didn't work out. The as it was hoped, then the um, uh, the aid from the United States and Europe somewhat is stalling. And so Ukraine was showing that it's fighting. So, of course, as Putin always does, the Russians fight back. So that's what we've been seeing. Um, as far as the New York Times reporting on signaling on, on um uh, on negotiations, uh, I, that's <clears throat> that's not how we see it here because they mean some signs and and winks. But uh, Putin has been quite clear almost from the beginning, actually from the beginning, uh, that uh, uh, Russia is going to achieve all its goals. So Russia is especially now when they're uh, when Russian forces are holding some territory, some Ukraine was able to uh, take back, but uh, a lot of it uh, Russia is holding. So that's that's the reality on the ground he's been talking about. So, yes, he always gives the signals. As long as you're able to negotiate on my terms, I am willing. And as for the prisoner exchange, uh, yes, it was for a while that hasn't been going on. But uh, actually, in this particular part of the war, because we already had uh, 2014 uh, when Russia annexed Crimea and there was some military action, uh, this time the prisoner exchange actually has been going infinitely better. In fact, they were really trying on that front to keep uh, to keep with the war uh, uh, with the with the war uh, with the war rules. And uh, Professor Khrushcheva, if you could say uh, more about the prisoner uh, of war exchange, how important it is, because there apparently I don't know how much is known about how many Russian prisoners of war are in Ukraine, but there are reportedly thousands, over 4,000 Ukrainian soldiers still in Russian captivity. 
And then also, if you could say, uh, you know, what is the position of uh, the Russian military now? There are some reports that suggest that a large number of the fighting forces, pre-war, pre-invasion fighting forces, have been wounded or killed. And now the main people who are fighting uh, in Ukraine are former convicts and people who've been drafted who aren't very well trained. Is, is that correct? Well, it, not entirely. Thank you. Not entirely correct. Um, as for we don't know how many thousands on each side actually they're prisoners. And of course, there's always prisoner exchange. I mean, I just want to warn, I'm not a war expert, but what I'm seeing, prisoner exchange is always some sort of political, in many ways, always political manipulation. You give some, you take some. Uh, this is the largest one. Apparently, what, I, what I'm reading that um, uh, I think was 245 and 75 of them was not even negotiated. Somehow the Ukrainians just uh, gave them back. Uh, and this is for uh, a number of prisoners from the Azov Battalion. You may remember there was this um, uh, very famous Azov Battalion um, associated with the um, uh, kind of, uh, you know, hard nationalist uh, Ukrainian force. And there was a lot of uh, a lot of arguments whether they should go free or not. And so apparently some of these people have been released from the Russian side. So this is the um, uh, this is what we are hearing. Also, they've been in December. There was a lot of talk that the new year is coming and it's important. And so we really have to have a good faith. Uh, as for those who fight in Ukraine, of course, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of casualties. We don't know once again how many, but tremendous amount. But what uh, what Russia figured out, what the Kremlin actually sort of figured out uh, somehow uh, is that uh, it's not that conscript, conscript, conscripts, but and so these are people who voluntarily fight. And many of those who come in voluntarily fighting, they did have some military training. And then there is this uh, Prigozhin we spoke about, I think, in the summer, uh, during the Prigozhin coup, Evgeny Prigozhin, the Wagner chief, who was uh, <clears throat> who was first pardoned and then killed for his uh, for his mutiny in in June, uh, he was the one who came up with that system that the prisoners, uh, violent prisoners, go and fight, and that's how they uh, they become regular citizens, so to speak. So a lot of them are in the army. They do go through some training. Russians, regular Russians, are very unhappy about that because a lot of these people come back and then commit violent crimes. But at the same time, it allows regular people also not to go and fight. And that's how kind of Putin was able, has been able to keep the semblance of sort of normalcy of the country at war, but not really the country at war. And Professor Khrushcheva, if you could talk about what conditions are like within Russia in terms of both how the war is being perceived there, uh, what ultimately the effect of the sanctions has been, what, what evidence you see of the effects of those sanctions today uh, in Russia, and the fact that uh, the majority of people there, uh, according to polls, do not support the war, and yet Putin has uh, over 80 percent approval rating still. And, and, and speak specifically, actually, in one of your pieces, you talked about this rural urban divide, how the war is viewed in St. Petersburg and Moscow, as opposed to elsewhere in the country, if you could if you could talk about yeah. that. Exactly. I mean, and that's really a tale of two Russias in the cities. uh 
people try to stay away, pretend it doesn't happen, despite all the billboards and kind of volunteer uh, volunteer places where you can go and uh, and sign up. And in in the piece that you 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 mentioned, I. You know, you go into a bookstore and all those people who are foreign agents, the one that been uh, been uh, uh, branded as foreign agents because they have not been supporting the war, the, the writers, uh, their books are available. You know, the all the sanctioned um, uh, sanctioned uh, you know chips and, and Mars bars or something. Uh, all of this is available, so you kind of wouldn't even know that there is war. And then you go deeper into uh, into cities uh, in Siberia. It was in, in Omsk, uh, which is not very deep in Siberia, but but far enough. And there, uh, in the little villages, there are beauty salons all of a sudden just popping up because the widows uh, or those who are uh, women who send their sons and, and, and husbands to war uh, got a lot of money. I mean, it's actually something that uh, that's how the army now functions. Uh, it's uh, it's being people are being paid off. And these were poor regions. And now suddenly they're washing off in money. They can go to on vacation. They can have some uh, summer um, uh, summer trips to warmer places and so on. And so this is kind of the, the dividing. I mean, Russia has, I mean, the double eagle is its coat of arms. It's always had the split personality disorder, the schizophrenia. But now it's visible more than ever in the cities. People pretend it's far away because they cannot stop it. But in smaller towns, in fact, they people are for Putin. They're not for the war, but they are for, so well, let's show the West that we are not going to surrender and whatnot. And also, I want to say that 80% is, is not the regular figure, but I would say that 60% is is the support. And 56% want want the war, want negotiations now, because, uh, because they feel that Russia for two years withstood the sanctions, figured it out how to move on, because sanctions are not that visible, except for the inflation and, and prices. Uh, but I other than that, they just feel that now Russia can end the war on stronger terms. So we just have about a minute, but the title of your piece, The West Must Face Reality in Ukraine, if you can talk about what that is, what we're not understanding, uh, particularly in the United States, and how this leads into the elections in March. Uh, well, uh, elections in March, I mean, when Putin is going to become president again, yes, we, we don't call it elections, of course. Uh, uh, it's uh, it's that, you know, Joe Biden declared that he uh, he's going to uh, strategically defeat Putin because he cannot withstand the war. That has proven otherwise. In the piece, I call it the Stalingrad effect. When, you know, when the whole world is on Russia, is want to take Russia down, Russia sort of figures out how to do these things. And so the quick victory, as Biden promised, uh, over Russia is not going to happen. I actually really don't see how Russia can be defeated in this war. It's a country of 11 time zones. And so I suggest that uh, one day there has to be some sort of taking, scaling back this grand idea of defeating Russia and figuring out how to actually end this war in the Ukraine and then go on punishing Russia if you want. But you, the war should really not be part of that uh, strategic agenda for the United States. Nina Khrushcheva, we thank you so much for being with us. Professor of International Affairs at the New School, speaking to us from Moscow. We'll link to your piece for Project Syndicate, The West Must Face Reality in Ukraine. Next up, we speak with civil rights leader Bishop William Barber, 
who's calling for more awareness and justice for disabled people after he was kicked out of a North Carolina movie theater when he went to see The Color Purple with his 90-year-old mother. Why did the AMC call the police when he put out his special chair to accommodate his disability? Stay with us. God is inside me and everyone else that was or ever will be. I came into this world with God and when I finally looked inside Just as close as my breath is to me The cast of the new musical adaptation of The Color Purple, singing the theme song. The movie based on Alice Walker's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel. She was the first African-American woman to win the Nobel Pri- the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. We end today's show with civil rights leader Bishop William Barber, who's calling for more awareness and justice for disabled people following his ouster from Greenville, North Carolina movie on Christmas week. He said AMC staff confronted him over his use of a specialized chair he carries with him and needs to use due to an arthritic condition he's had for decades. The reverend was attending a screening, the premiere of The Color Purple with his 90-year-old mother the day after Christmas. The new musical adaptation of Alice Walker's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel had the second biggest Christmas Day opening of all time. Some of the original 1985 film was shot in North Carolina. The new film features the North Carolina actor Fantasia Barino-Taylor as Celie, reprising the role she played on Broadway. Bishop Barber says the staff refused to allow him to use his chair in the theater's disabled section. Instead, they called the police to have him removed. Two officers arrived to escort him out of the movie theater as the trailers played. Bishop Barber shared with us a video of the incident. This is a part of it. I want to take you out. I cannot go out. Okay, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to take you and I'm going to take you out and I'll if, charge if you, you on my car. That's fine. If you, if you want to take me out and leave the property, I'll do that. Yep, that's what I want to do. I do it all the He's time. He's been on Broadway. I do it all the time. I've been on Broadway. Broadway. Come here. Y'all, I've been on broad hair. I've been in the White House with this chair. They've called an officer of the law. So that was Bishop Barber being escorted out of the theater last Tuesday, the day after Christmas. He says his removal was a violation of the 1990 Americans with Disabilities Act. AMC Theater released a statement that the company apologized to Barber and his family, and AMC chairman and CEO Adam Iran met with Barber this week. We'll ask him about that meeting in a minute, but first I want to turn to Bishop Barber's press conference from Friday when he shared with the world what happened to him when he took his 90-year-old mother to see the color purple. This week was going to be our time of reminiscing, 
knowing, uh, Bishop Lowe, that this would be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You know, a movie doesn't stay in the theater forever. That's right. Has a season, and then other movies come along. It won't be in the theater next Christmas. Right? This was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. The original plan was to see the movie on Christmas Day, but then we chose the matinee, and truthfully, I knew it would be so many people there, and I know, you know, she's slower now, I'm slow, so I asked her would she mind doing matinee, not in the evening when most people come, but one o'clock, you know, two o'clock in the day, three o'clock. On Saturday, this coming Saturday, we're having a major celebration of her birthday, even though she was born in November. And on Saturday, in Piney Woods, a place most of you in the media may or may not know about, it's one of the few free communities, the communities that was always with free black folk, mulatto, black, and Native Americans in eastern North Carolina. And on that day, we're going to sing. And she said she wanted anybody in the community to come free, free food, free music. And the governor has decided to give her the order of the longleaf pine for her years of service in this state. So this was a once in a lifetime opportunity. This week was planned out. See the movie this week, this time, enjoy the reminiscing, and then on Saturday to have this big gathering at home, outside, under tent member tissue. And then I had to get back on the road because I've got to preach on Sunday evening for a national watch night service in Winston-Salem. Excuse me. But our plans were interrupted when the managers of the AMC Theater here in Greenville chose to call the police rather than accommodate my visible disability. For more than 30 years now, I've suffered from a form of arthritis that's a rare, but one of the most dangerous forms, debilitating form, called ankylosing spondylitis. Most of you in here, I've never talked to you about it. All you just see me doing is pushing on through. I walk now with two canes, I have to carry a high chair with me everywhere I go because my hip is fused, part of my neck and spine, and I cannot bend to sit in a low chair nor rise from a low position. For more, we are joined by Bishop Barber. He's joining us today from Indianapolis, Indiana, because he always is on the road. President and senior lecturer at Repairers of the Breach, founding director of the Center for Public Theology and Public Policy at Yale Divinity School. Bishop Barber, welcome back to Democracy Now! under these terrible circumstances and always. You just met with the head of AMC, the largest movie chain in the world. Can you talk more about what happened? Here you're about to celebrate your mother's 90th birthday, and the managers come and call the po armed police and security guard to haul you out because you've got a chair you've sat in everywhere from the White House to a prison cell? 
to accommodate your disability? Yes, Amy, you know, it's quite absurd and, and tragic, um, not just for me, but what continues to happen to persons with disability. You know, the ADA came about because people refused uh, to move and were arrested and all kinds of things happened to them. Three officers, one security guard and two police with police with guns. And the police actually treated me better than the managers. And I'm not ashamed of having a disability. In the Bible, uh, Moses had a disability. Paul had a disability. Jesus was acquainted with sorrow. Uh, down through history, God has used a lot of people with disabilities, from Fanny Crosby, who was blind but wrote hymns, and and uh, Isaac Watts, who wrote Joy to the World but had pain all of his life, Roosevelt, uh, who, who had um, polio, and Wilma Rudolph, who had polio, and John Kennedy, who was uh, ailing, Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, the list goes on and on. But I'm ashamed of going to a place in my own hometown and basically being stopped at the door and being told that my chair, not, not where I place it, in fact, I've been in the same theaters before, uh, as you said, noted, from the Vatican to the White House to prisons with this chair. But the chair was not going to be allowed because it was a fire hazard when it's not where you place it. I always choose theaters that have the handicapped cutout areas uh, where you put wheelchairs or any other. It's a specially cutout area where they put no other chairs there. And they're being told by the persons, well, go get a doctor's note and come back as though getting a doctor's note, if it was a violation of a fire hazard, why would a doctor's note change that? Or being told, we know who you are, but you're still not going to come in here with this chair. And then to be them to call the police, and because I debated them and I had my right to challenge them, that there was this loud, boisterous, big black man, I guess, and, and that I was trespassing, and they wanted me arrested for trespassing. And then to, when the officers came to suggest that to, to move me or arrest me, they'd have to empty the theater, which is why I went on and went out, because I wasn't going to disrupt everybody else's day. But I think about all the other people in the world, people who don't get up and try to enjoy public accommodation because of their fear. And the, and the law says you have to reasonably accommodate. You have to try to accommodate. There was no attempt to accommodate. There was an attempt to say no, period, end of story. Uh, you're not coming in. And in my hometown, uh, it's, it's, of all the things we have to be fighting at this time, war, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, a homophobia, a fight for voting rights, the fight for living wages, the fight for health care, that these two men would choose to fight me, <laughs> to fight somebody who has a visible disability and say no to me going in and watching a movie that's about triumph and family, which is why my mother really wanted to see it on that day. Um, she's 90. I don't know how much longer she'll be with me, with us. But, you know, and her question was simply this, and with tears, why? And, you know, she fought for openness and fought for civil rights. Why is it that two persons, and it doesn't matter what color they are, you know, we were even told, well, you should have called in advance. First of all, the law does not say that. You don't, don't have to call in advance. But the fact of the matter is we did. <laughs> we had purchased seats in advance and made sure that there was a handicapped cutout area. And yet we were treated like this. Um, it's quite absurd, quite tragic. And that's why we have to fight. And it's not about me. It's about the millions and millions of people, some who never come out because they're afraid something like this might happen to them.
Mr. Barber, if you could um, give us a little history lesson on the American Disabilities Act, its origins, and, and what it's made possible for people across the country. Well, you know, it actually tracks the Civil Rights Act of 64. You know, it flows out of that same legal theory, equal protection under the law. And uh, it was bipartisan. Tom, Senator Tom Harkins actually introduced it. And interestingly, George Bush uh, Sr. signed it I mean, yeah, in the 1990s. Uh, and, and, and basically, you know, people had to sit down in restaurants, had to refuse to move. They had to uh, bring their whatever they uh, used to be mobile, uh, whatever they used to accommodate, be accommodated. And they were arrested and sometimes beaten and kicked out and spit on all kinds of things. But they refused to give up. They basically said, we are not going to be denied. And, and, and what the law says is a public business, and theaters are included in that, uh, you know, anything that's public, you have to accommodate reasonably people. You cannot keep them from enjoying what the rest of the public enjoys simply because they have some form of a disability. Um, you know, and there have been some tragic stories. Some years ago, a young man with Down syndrome uh, was actually arrested and killed uh, at a theater. He was uh, asphyxiated and suffocated, all because people did not want to recognize his disability and treat him fairly. Bishop Barber, um, that why did you decide to leave with the police? Can you talk about what they threatened to do this day, the holiday? I mean, Color Purple, Bloom, other movies out of the waters opened on Christmas Day, uh, was filmed where um, you were in North Carolina, in the state of North Carolina. They were going to clear out the theater um, if you insisted on staying? Exactly. The, the managers were insisting that, uh, you know, uh, Sister Oprah did a tremendous with this job through this movie Fantasia. You know, Oprah, I've served on panels and that she's convened. But yes, the, the, the police, see, the manager said we want, they said trespassing. And the police had to get involved because they made that call and made that They're accusation. They charge you with trespassing? Charging with trespassing. Is that after, and that, after I paid to be there? And and the and, and they said that because I debated them, they described debating. And sure, I debate strong and hard when you're trying to take rights. I mean, that's what I do. And so uh, they, they, if you if you are upset or, or, or angry or bothered, then somehow that's what made them so bothered that they wanted me out. They wanted me arrested for trespass. Now the police literally kind of let me know they didn't even want to be there. But what they said is. If you don't leave, we're being told we have to clear this theater in order to arrest you. So I said, I cannot leave in good conscience. If you take me out, I'll go with you. I'm not going to resist arrest or risk. But you can, what the police did when they got me out, they left. They, they didn't even try to stay. They said, okay, fine. we don't really want to be here. Now, we were sitting on the outside, and, the, and a TV news station came, and we were talking to them. This manager came out with another security guard with a gun saying we had to leave. I couldn't even stay and wait on my mother to come out. I had to leave her in the theater with an attendee. Uh, and, a, and a young girl who also has a disability, she has had epilepsy, and, and her mother, they wouldn't let me stay there. And then when we were leaving, the lady waved, like a taunting wave, as though she had won. So, so and, Bishop, and I, and I see, Bishop anyway. Barber, you met with the AMC CEO, uh, Adam Aaron. He came to Greenville to meet with you. What were your demands of him? 
Well, I can't say everything, but I can tell you we did not come to a resolution. We, we had a beginning conversation. And we agreed that, that that some things need to be changed. He gave an apology, but as I said, apology is about action, because this is not about me personally. It's about me, but it's about bigger than me. Because if you would touch me, who else will you touch? Who else will be affected negatively? Uh, we agreed to a second meeting. Hopefully, we can really get down to the kinds of solution that needs to happen that could be quantified and concretized and measured. Uh, this is very serious business. It's very serious business. Uh, it is about the law. It is about our fundamental rights. I was glad that he came. I'm somewhat encouraged by him coming, but that was an initial conversation. And uh, uh, while I agreed to confidentiality, you know, even my sense is that he received some distorted facts that I had to correct him. Um, for instance, one of the things is very, very clear. When I finally went into the theater, I was stopped. They weren't even going to let me go in the theater to even access where I could sit or what could be accommodated. When I finally went in, I deliberately chose what I've chosen hundreds of other times, a cutout area that says handicap that's designed for a chair, wheelchair, and was in a position to make sure that what bothered about it wasn't in the aisle. I'm, I have sense enough to know you can't sit something in the aisle. Uh, but I set that chair where I've set it at Broadway and other theaters. And it was when I got inside that then they, they brought the police. So part of the day, the other day, was clarifying for him, really clear, because, you know, his people have talked to him and distorted the record. But we've got hopefully another conversation, and we'll see after that one, you know, where we are on this. But we cannot let this go because it's too important to, to too many people. As I say, I, I think about the people who just every day say, I would go, yeah, but I'll just stay home. I'll just stay home. Reverend Barbara, we just have a second, but if you could talk about how you've used your own experience, your own um, health issues to draw attention to the lack of adequate health care for a lot of Americans. Well, you know, you have a certain empathy when you when you have it. I think every day I have health care, but what about people suffering from ankylosing that don't? 87 million people in this country are either uninsured or underinsured. You know, I have some resources to even buy a chair or to see the doctor. But what about the more than 100 plus million people who are poor and low wealth? You know, for, poverty is the fourth leading cause of death right now in this country. What about persons like that that, that don't have an opportunity? I think your pain in life is supposed to make you more committed to standing with others, to serving with others, and to challenging systems of injustice. That pain bring, should bring a certain empathy, a certain sympathy, and a certain kind of courage. You know, any time, any day, I want to quit or just, just stop. I look at people who are even in worse situations than me, and I say, you know, you cannot stop simply because you have a challenge. And the fact of the matter is, historically, some of the people with the greatest challenges, you know, one of our greatest presidents in this country had polio. Today, he probably couldn't get elected because people would be more focused on his chair than his heart and his mind. Uh, and, and, and that's tragic. You know, it's one of our greatest civil rights leaders, Fannie Lou Hamer. Some people today wouldn't want her because she was had a serious disability in polio. But thank God that she turned her pain into some kind of power. It didn't mean it didn't hurt. It wasn't frustrating. Bishop but, Barber, but, we have to break now, but we're going to continue our discussion with you. And I just want to ask, did you ever get to see the color purple? No, no. 
Bishop William Barber, president and senior lecturer at Repairers of the Breach, founding director of the Center for Public Theology and Public Policy at Yale Divinity School. In our post show at democracynow.org, we're going to ask you about your piece, Evangelical Appeal to Moral Case for Ceasefire in Gaza. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. <laughs> 